On today's episode, a PHT injury update. Welcome to the podcast, helping you overcome your proximal hamstring tendinopathy. This podcast is designed to help you understand this condition, learn the most effective evidence-based treatments, and of course, bust the widespread misconceptions. My name is Brody Sharp. I'm an online physiotherapist, recreational athlete, creator of the Run Smarter series, and a chronic proximal hamstring tendinopathy battler. Whether you are an athlete or not, this podcast will educate and empower you in taking the right steps to overcome this horrible condition. So let's give you the right knowledge along with practical takeaways in today's lesson. This is from the Run Smarter podcast about five or six weeks ago. I did an episode on updating people on PHT based on the previous episodes I had released, which was a couple of years ago. And yeah, a few revelations and insights and my understanding of PHT and what I've learned now. So enjoy. Since we have more listeners and I've interviewed more guests, you know, my ideas of these certain conditions have changed slightly getting a, a few new fresh ideas. And so these injury update episodes will be quite nice. And it's also nice to refresh your memory on these sorts of things as well, because you can learn something and then forget it 12 months later. And then if it's delivered another way or just reminded to you, it can be a nice way to kickstart some of your rehab or focus on those injury prevention principles as well. And so there are a lot of running related conditions out there. So I put the vote out on the Run Smarter Facebook group couple of running related conditions and said, this is the idea. I want to do some injury updated episodes and vote on which conditions you want to see more of or the most. And I'll do those. And so PHT came out number one, which is why we're doing it today. It was actually um, submitted by one of the Facebook group members. <laughs> um, people were submitting their own and it was actually glute slash high hamstring. So Usually a glute pain for a runner is most likely going to be PHT. It's misdiagnosed as like piriformis or some sort of glute soreness because it's so high up into the hip, but would most often be PHT. Uh, but originally I didn't put it in there as an option because I have the podcast. I have the Overcoming PHT podcast, which is the second podcast that I do specifically to treat this condition. And I know a lot of you who do have PHT are listening to both. So I thought that might've been the case, but someone decided to put that option in there and then it came number one. So I think let's just do it anyway. But if you want to know more about PHT, if you want to dive deep into some of these topics, I do have that podcast out there. There's like 70 episodes just about treating and managing and preventing PHT. So if you want that deep dive, you can go to that podcast and sorry for not putting PHT in there as an option. I didn't know that it would become number one. Um, the other places I have, um, so the upper hamstring slash glute came in at 19%. Patellofemoral pain was 15%. So I'll do that the next injury update episode that I do. ITB syndrome, Achilles tendon and calf were 13 and 10% and 10% as well was shin splints. So I guess it was just the most five most common running related conditions, but I'll do an update. I'll uh, do those, like I said, every couple of weeks or so. And I guess 
we'll start with just talking about what PHT is just briefly. The attachment, the hamstring attachment onto the sitting bone becomes irritated essentially. And it can sometimes be like this tightness in the high hamstring or some people feel like a dull ache in the glute or that particular region. And then sometimes, not always, um, it becomes a bit sore and achy to sit on. Uh, speed work, heels, cycling, uh, bending forward, those sorts of things tend to trigger that tightness and soreness in that area. And so sometimes it can just be a mild tendinopathy, but then if mismanaged can develop into something quite chronic. And then it starts to affect daily life, like bending, doing housework, uh, going upstairs, sitting especially, like long car drives, those sorts of things can really impact day-to-day life. Past episodes that I've done, so I interviewed Mareka Lowe, I think it was episode uh, 30, like in the 30s, and the title of the episode is Why Your Hamstring Tendinopathy Isn't Getting Better, and she had five top tips. Um, For generic sort of tendon guidance, I did have that tendinopathy series way back, um, pretty much after doing the 10 universal principles. I did, you know, a few pain episodes and then I did a tendinopathy series. And so if you're wanting that, those generic principles about um, pain during exercise, pain afterwards, progressing and just managing tendon symptoms and interpreting symptoms, those sorts of things. You can go back to those episodes, but Mareka had five tips about PHT. Tip number one was not addressing the compression of the tendon. And when we say compression of the tendon, we mean things like sitting on the tendon and kind of like squashing it. Um, But also with things like bending forward and doing deadlifts and things within your rehab, where you put tension on that tendon as it wraps around the sitting bone and sort of squashes the tendon into the bone. Um, the best thing to do is if it's irritated to avoid those compressive movements and exercises to help it settle down. But usually that's for a couple of days. Then once things are settled down, it's important that you build up the compression and you allow the tendon to adapt and tolerate higher levels of compression. And we do that through rehab and we can also do it through like a, a progressive sitting schedule. And just along the way, the tendon just gets more and more used to compression. Important that we do that because some people with PHT do find that or read that stretching is really bad for the tendon. So they totally avoid it completely altogether and they find that sitting is bad for the tendon. So they avoid that altogether as well. And while it does help settle down things initially, it does contribute to that pain, rest, weakness, downward spiral because you're totally avoiding those behaviors. And so the tendon's never going to get used to compression. And we wanted to get used to compression because you need to sit, you need to bend forward, and you need to do certain levels of compression everyday life as well as running. So you need to introduce it back in as soon as symptoms allow. And the same thing that goes with the running pattern, uh, levels of compression when running. Mareka talks about the leaning forward at the trunk and overstriding the combination of the two can create a bit of a tendon compression and those traits are kind of less ideal when it comes to a runner so you can change those things you can increase your cadence and you can run with a more upright posture to take compression out or less compression on the tendon when you do run so those things were um, advised by Mareka the second tip that she had on that episode was just exercise choice making sure that you're not doing too much initially 
because some people read or listen to my podcast and think that deadlifts are fantastic because I think it's a fantastic exercise, but they go away and they do deadlifts and the, the range that they go through is too much. The weight they do is too much or the, he- the repetitions are too much and it just flares things up. So make sure that you're making a gradual approach, making sure you're testing and retesting, interpreting symptoms and progressing along the way through acceptable loads. Tip number three for Mareka was uh, the dosage. And when we say dosage, we mean the sets, reps, weights, and frequency, how often throughout the week. And she mentions that it can be a bit of an art as well as a science, but we want people to recover from the exercise after doing it. Um, and people recover at different rates. She mentions um, gender and hormones. Um, when in the female cycle, they are age, those sorts of things all affect recovery times and therefore um, would change the frequency of someone's exercise. So important to get that right balance and it might require tailored intervention or expert help. Um, but yeah, just something to be mindful there. The fourth tip was just having realistic expectations. She mentions that um, progressing or strengthening the tendon takes a long, a long time and recovery is not linear. So people would hope to expect that, you know, your injury st- steadily gets better week by week, month by month in a very linear fashion, but rarely is that the case. Flare-ups often happen. Um, the trend, the, the long trend should be on the improve. But week by week, day by day, sometimes you can have fluctuations. So just expectations around that. She mentioned that 12, at least 12 weeks of good rehab is when you should start seeing good results. So we're looking at around three months there. So those sort of timeframes, when it comes to um, getting real significant gains and returning back to running, if it is a chronic issue, um, some research points to more than six months. So keep that in mind. Tip number five from Mareka was um, just addressing people's belief in recovery and in the particular condition. She referred to Facebook groups and how certain Facebook groups have people with PHT posting um, their thoughts, their experiences, and saying they've had this particular condition for several years. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. I'm talking about surgery and it creates a lot of fear. And then people become frightened because they have that same condition and wonder if that's ever going to be them. And um, if someone experiences a flare-up, that also changes their overall experience and think, oh, this is never going to get better. I'm always going to have this. And just the idea just to um, be quite positive with your rehab, making sure that you recognize you are an individual. You're not going to follow the same rehab path as someone else. And you don't know enough information in that post to know what's happening. Maybe they have a different condition. Maybe they've just been mismanaging it for years and they haven't tried that good rehab that this podcast highlights. And so um, remaining optimistic and recognizing your recovery as an individual is really important. The second PHT episode that I did was um, what Brody has learned from PHT. And it was um, an episode, I can't remember the episode number or around about when it was, uh, maybe in the 80s, but because I have had PHT before, I just highlighted my particular takeaways and key lessons from me dealing with it. And I had three main takeaways. The first one was the impact that speed can have running speed on this particular condition. When I first got it, 
it was after training for a marathon, I was doing fine. My hamstrings were doing well, doing that really slow build up and building up to that 42 Ks. I was running, you know, two, three, four hours comfortably, not comfortably, but my hamstrings were tolerating it. But then I moved to triathlons, which are shorter, significantly shorter, but I just did it a lot faster. And the bike, getting off the bike and doing a fast run, overloaded my hamstrings and I developed PHT um, pretty early on, pretty quickly. And so we need to recognize the importance of speed when it comes to uh, the demands that the hamstring requires, particularly in this eccentric phase. As you go through this late swing phase in your running, your body needs to slow down that momentum while it's also lengthening. So your leg is straightening out, the knee is straightening as it's trying to slow that momentum down. And what it does is the hamstring works really hard in that particular phase, just before the foot touches the ground while it's lengthening. So that's why it's such a high demand. And the faster you run, the more and more those hamstrings kick in and that eccentric phase has to work harder to slow down the momentum of that fast swinging leg. And so this is really mindful. You need to be really mindful of this when it comes to prevention. So if you don't have PHT, make sure, like my mistake, when you do go to faster sprints and, you know, competing with uh, shorter intervals, you just need to make sure it's really gradual. But if you do have PHT, this is also need to be mindful when it comes to rehab and your return to running, making sure you stay slow, making sure that you build up a slow buffer. And then when you decide to introduce speed, making sure it's really gradual and really structured. My second tip on that episode was sort of what I talked about before, uh, what Mareka mentioned before, but it was to rehab into compression, making sure that compression is introduced and the exercise um, is, I guess, within acceptable levels of pain. We know that from previous episodes. I shared my own experience with increasing my deadlifts, which the pain level during that particular exercise was up at five out of 10 pain, but... <laughs> Treating myself, I decided to be a little bit more on the, the risky, aggressive side of things and it paid off just because I knew my tendons were quite strong, not really that irritable and just a little bit sore, just a little bit achy. So decided to opt for a slightly higher pain level rule. Um, but yeah, it was a success for me anyway. Um, the third tip I had on that particular episode was that strength exercises a list of strength exercises that has helped me. I've done some Nordic hip dips, which is most people are familiar with the Nordic drop, but same position. I just dip at the hips like a drinking bird. I mentioned deadlifts, single leg deadlifts. And then for something a bit more power plyometric based, I used wall balls and rocket jumps. Moving to the fresh content and a couple of points that I wanted to add in to create this injury update episode, um, I have one, two, three, four, five things to mention. And hopefully you find this helpful with the understanding of PHT. Also, I guess, general principles when it comes to understanding tendon recovery. <clears throat> and the first thing that I want to do, which is working quite well with my PHT clients that I'm treating, um, particularly those who are end stage sort of running and getting back to their athletic performance, but still having some symptoms is to manage your particular 
um, routine, like your weekly routine, rather than having a strength day, a rest day, a run day, sort of modifying and fluctuating the intensities of the strength and sort of rehab sessions. And this came as an idea from, or suggested by uh, Tom Goom's study, which was about PHT and the management of PHT. And they suggested a routine that involves a high day, which would be like a heavy, um, you know, in the gym, deadlifts, step-ups, um, Nordics, these sorts of things that are generating a high demand on the hamstring and the hamstring tendon, both in and out of compression. Doing that on one day, calling that your high day, backing that the next day with a low day. So you you do mainly rest, but it'd be um, low enough so that everything recovers, but you can still load it a little bit. This is where you know, your isometric bridges or your long lever bridges or maybe some banded work, maybe some crab walks or something that just works the glutes is enough to, I guess, create a low day, enough to recover. Then you're coming back up to a, a moderate day and then that might involve maybe some lighted weighted exercises. Maybe you're doing lunges, body weight lunges or some lighter step-ups or hamstring curls with a band, something like that. And then backing down to a rest day and repeating that cycle. So high, low, moderate rest on repeat. And that particular cycle seems to be a nice, I guess, initial attempt, a nice template for uh, fostering a good adaptation response mixed with recovery. We want to try and find that right balance. And so I'm finding particular success with that routine but modified slightly, like you start with that template and then based on symptoms and based on the lifestyle of the athlete, based on their goals, you sort of just make a slight adjustments here and there, but has been found to, especially for me, um, to increase the effectiveness for those who are still symptomatic, but still highly functioning. Another kind of slight adjustment that I have made for some, especially those gym goers, is to change the time under tension. So they might be doing their deadlifts and it might be at 100 pounds or, you know, 50 kilos and it's things are going well, but still a little bit symptomatic. Trying this the slow down phase uh, under more time, more time under tension. So maybe four seconds slow down in that eccentric phase and then only two or three seconds back up. So as the set is complete, you're spending more time under tension and particularly with that eccentric phase. So working with tempo, I guess, especially with those slow, heavy based exercises can work pretty well at just a slight tweak in their management, which can then enhance the recovery. So that was tip number one. The second thing I wanted to talk about was just the the bridges and eventually phasing out of the bridges. I have a lot of people jump on injury chats. A lot of those injury chats are PHT related. And a lot of those PHT clients are saying they do bridges and they're a little bit painful. So they don't progress. They keep to bridges, most often body weight, sometimes with a little bit of weight and they maintain that for three months and don't, have the confidence to progress. And this is just like fostering a very limited ability to, to recover. 
you're not offering enough to start seeing significant change and significant results. You're never going to improve your running or improve your sitting or improve your bending if you don't get out of that bridges phase. And for most, if I were to start with someone with PHT, start working with them, um, I would try to get them onto deadlifts, but it wouldn't be full range deadlifts. It wouldn't be heavy deadlifts based on their level of strength, level of function and how irritable their tendons are. I start sometimes with a half range of movement, Romanian deadlift, and it might only be 10 pounds, but it's something. And then we can see how symptoms behave. And if that's fine, then increase the weight. I did a entire episode on the PHT podcast on how to progress deadlifts just because I see such importance with it and I see such good benefits, but someone's introduction into deadlifts, especially if they don't have the right guidance, can easily overdo things and then easily flare them up. They become discouraged. They go back to their bridges and stay there for several months. So just created an episode with the need to, okay, this is a starting point. You might not need to start here. You might want to start at stage six or seven, but this is stage one. This is how you progress through each stage. So I did an episode on that. Um, deadlifts, weighted step-ups, hamstring curls. That hamstring curl might be at the gym doing the machine prone or cable prone hamstring curl, or it might start off with a band. Most people have resistance bands at home. Um, those three, the deadlifts, the step-ups, the hamstring curls are something that I would implement straight away for most. And if people like the bridges, if they find it settles down their pain, then I'd keep it in, but doesn't have as much importance in my mind. The third thing I want to discuss is, I guess, the introduction into running and speed and hills. And I did mention earlier um, the impact that speed has. Be very careful. I usually go off the rough guideline that 40 minutes of slow, continuous running, once you can do that on a level ground, once you're able to sustain 40 minutes of running without, uh, um, well, I guess the tendon and the hamstring agrees with it. It's acceptable. It's an acceptable uh, dosage of load. Once we do that, if speed is on your mind, then maybe we introduce speed then. But I always start with strides. This will come in really handy because next week's episode, I'm interviewing Claire Bartholik and we're talking all about strides. So we'll do that. Um, that will uh, be timed very nicely. But I do strides just as a brief introduction into speed to see how the tendon will behave. Once we know the tendon behaves well with four repeats of strides, then we increase the level of strides, the number of repeats and the top speed that you do in those strides. Once you've got a couple of weeks of those and we know the tendon's doing well, that's when we do short intervals. And those intervals might be 30 seconds of running a bit faster, maybe 60 seconds of running a bit faster. It all depends on the individual in terms of what level we start at and then how to progress from there. But it always needs to be structured. It always needs to be written down as a plan and then gradually progressed. Those who run 40 minutes pain-free and say, yeah, I'm okay to introduce speed. And then they just do that 40 minutes just a little bit faster. They usually come undone pretty quickly. 
it's a different stimulus and it's a, a different strain. And so making sure you follow these guidelines, making sure it's written down, it's measured. And therefore, if you do come unstuck, you've then learnt where that capacity is, where that limit is, wait for things to settle down and then just don't make the same mistake. So really, really careful. Once you've done intervals, once you're at running, you know, two minute intervals at an RPE of around seven or eight, that's when we have the confidence to start introducing hills. Now, hills have a whole bunch of different variables, how fast you go up the hill, what the incline is like on that hill, how well, the distance of the, the total hill. So there's a lot of variables there, but if you can find a hill that's consistent, if you've got one next to your house that has the same incline every time, has the same distance every time, um, maybe that's something to start with to introduce those hills, introduce some repeats, um, keep the, the RPE consistent when you're going up that, or the power, or the heart rate, whatever you want to monitor, and introduce those. But like I said, 40 minutes of continuous easy running to start with, then strides, progress those strides, then short intervals, then once you've done that and you're comfortable with doing some intervals, then hills. Okay, two more to go. And um, this fourth one that I have written down is resistance exercises into hip extension. So what that looks like if someone's familiar with getting a band, you're essentially putting a band around your ankle and attaching it to something in front of you. While you're standing, legs straight, you get that um, leg with the, the band around it and you extend it behind you. So you're extending your hips, legs are staying straight, and that's what we call like resisted hip extension. Now, this exercise for people with PHT varies drastically. So sometimes I have this test, I do this resistance test, and it can be extremely painful for some even more painful than like a deadlift. But I have other people with PHT that do it and they're totally fine. So what I say for people, if they have a goal, well, most people have a goal for hip extension because you need that for running, you need that for swimming, and it can be particularly problematic like day-to-day -day sort of movements. Um, so if it is painful, that's a really key piece of the puzzle, a really key insight because then we need to train that particular movement and train the tendon to move under load in that position so then that becomes your strong suit. We just need to try and find the right starting point. And so if that hip extension under resistance is a three or four out of 10, that's you can start just with that. Just do three sets of 10 each side under that moderate or easy resistance, whatever falls within acceptable pain limits. But if you do that hip extension, it's like a six or a seven, uh, reduce the range of movement. So start with the band under tension with the foot in front of you, and then extend a, instead of extending back past your other stance leg, you're only just extending back to meet that stance leg. We call that back to neutral. And then, then you go back to the starting point. So reducing the range of movement with that particular exercise. And once you get better, you can increase the tension of the band, you can increase the range of movement, you can increase the speed of that exercise, and that helps you get back into things like kicking, back into kicking when swimming, back to extending the hip when you're running, and it just makes another link in the chain a bit stronger. And so, like I said, sometimes it's fine for some 
Sometimes it's really painful for others. If you are in that sort of camp that it is quite painful or significantly weaker than the other side, put it into your rehab. And finally, my last tip is about deadlifts and double leg versus single leg. Because I have come across a few people that just do single leg deadlifts. And whether that is because they don't have enough weight in their home or wherever they do their exercise. And so they think, oh, I might as well just do heavy single leg deadlifts rather than not heavy double leg deadlifts. Or maybe they're under the belief that it is a progression. And so they, they move away from double leg deadlifts and only towards single leg deadlifts. I say this all the time, especially on the PHT podcast, tendons love slow, heavy load. And in order to go slow, you need to be stable. And in order to be stable, you need to have two feet feet on the ground. So another thing is, so the slow and heavy. The heavy side of things, you can't simply, if you're really strong and you do a, a double leg deadlift, you can't halve that deadlift and do that weight single leg just because you don't have the support, you don't have the coordination, you don't have the strength. So you can lift heavier with double legs than you can if you halve it with single legs. So more strain is going to go through that tendon because we want it to be slow and we want it to be heavy under the right conditions. Um, like I said before, making sure it's within acceptable pain limits and making sure you can tolerate it. But eventually you want it to be slow and heavy. So those who are doing single leg deadlifts and only single leg deadlifts, highly recommended that you go back to double and that still becomes the the double leg progressions are the primary focus. You can still do single leg deadlifts. You can do them like maybe once a week, but the heavy deadlifts two to three times a week, depending on how heavy you're actually getting. If it is really heavy, maybe twice. If it's about a moderate intensity, maybe three times, but Really important that you do that. And maybe a good lesson for other exercises like, say, calf and Achilles stuff, you'll be able to do double leg calf raises really heavy. Like just uh, if I do a bent knee double leg calf raise right now in my gym, I'm building up to about 90, 95 kilos, and I'm only 70 kilos in weight. So, you know, significantly more than my body weight. But if I halve that to 45 kilos, I can't hold on to a double, I can't do the same amount of repetitions with half that weight with a single leg calf raise and expect to do the same quality because you're sort of challenging your balance. It's just like really tough to do. So I'd say double leg, you can still do single leg stuff. It's important that we do single leg stuff, but the double leg stuff still needs to be in there. Like I said, this is for people who are doing single leg deadlifts and only because they've sort of phased away from the double leg stuff. So bit of a recap, my first tip, the high, low, moderate rest cycle on repeat, and then just make your your own tailored adjustments from there. Phase out of bridges, uh, you know, you sort of got to get through that hump and start introducing the, the deadlifts, the step-ups, the hamstring curls. It just needs to be modified enough so that you can tolerate them nicely and you can tolerate them with weight, reps, range of movement, speed, all those sorts of things the progressions into running, 40 minutes continuous, then getting into strides, then into intervals, then into hills. The hip extension, the resisted hip extension, if that is particularly aggravating for you, implement that into your rehab and making sure we're keeping the double leg deadlifts in there and not just doing single legs. 
Thanks once again for listening and taking control of your rehab. If you are a runner and love learning through the podcast format, then go ahead and check out the Run Smarter podcast hosted by me. I'll include the link along with all the other links mentioned today in the show notes. So open up your device, click on the show description, and all the links will be there waiting for you. Congratulations on paving your way forward towards an empowering, pain-free future. And remember, knowledge is power. Oh, 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 oh,